0: Greetings and salutations, and welcome to Vesperisms, The Art of Thinking for Yourself. I'm your host, author-illustrator Vesper Stamper, and this is your weekly 15-minute recalibration of your artistic worldview. So grab your coffee and have a seat over there in my studio, and let's have a chat. This is episode seven, The Dream of Justice, an interview with storyteller Will Ford. For the past several episodes, we've been talking about artistic process, But since the killing of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, I decided to press pause on that while I did a lot of listening and watching and reading. I felt it was important to practice what I preached in terms of process, to perceive and think before I would speak and act. So I've spent the last few weeks talking with some good friends and trying to understand this moment as well as I could. With such a multiplicity of factors and viewpoints, I haven't scratched the surface any more than anyone else, but I have begun to have some clarity. And one of the friends I've been speaking with is Will Ford III. Will and I connected through his wife, my friend de Haviland. And together, Will and de Havilland lead a movement called 818 The Sign. Will currently serves as the director of the Marketplace Leadership Major at Christ for the Nations Institute in Dallas, and he's an international speaker, teacher, and storyteller. He's become a dear friend, and we've been talking about actually doing a picture book together about his amazing story, which you'll hear in our conversation. Both during the coronavirus crisis and now during the protest movement, I think Will's perspective about what's going on in America ought to be at the forefront of the conversation. In this episode, Will and I talk about the nature of story and narrative, the power of dreams, and what artists had to offer at pivotal historic moments in the past— and what we have to offer at our own pivotal moment in this unusual year we call 2020. So here's my interview with Will Ford III. Enjoy. It's uh, good to be with you this morning. It is early for you, isn't it? It is. (laughs) Well, I'm so glad we could talk today. Um, There's a lot going on in our country right now, and I'm taking a little bit of a pause from the series that I'm doing on the podcast Because I thought that, um, based on our conversations, I thought, I think that there's some stuff that Vesperism's listeners could really benefit from hearing. So, um, now, you're a storyteller at heart.
1: Yeah, you know, for the most part, I am. I didn't know that until my students told me. Mr. Ford, you're a storyteller. So, I guess I am.
0: Yeah, and one of the stories that you tell is about your family's history. And it's, um, I think your story is stranger than fiction. I, <laughs> so, it really, I can't believe it. But, um, but so you travel the country and the world, and you tell, um, you, you carry around with you this cast iron kettle pot as yeah. the basis for the story that you tell about your family. Could you share that with us?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, in my family, I have this 200 year old kettle pot. Oh, I say 200 years old. Colonial Williamsburg put it that like 1834. So, what's 30 or 40 years amongst friends, right? But it's about, it's about 200 years old. It's used by the slaves of my family. That's why it's been passed down. They used it for cooking, but the reason why it's passed down is because they secretly use it for prayer. They were owned by this slave master who, uh, he wanted them to be Christians, but he didn't want them to pray because he didn't want them to get any kind of hope for freedom. Uh, but uh, these folks, they they prayed anyway, even though he would beat them if he, if he caught them. So what they would do is they'd go into a barn late at night, to make sure their prayer meeting wasn't seen, but to make sure it wasn't heard, they use that pot as an acoustic means. So how'd they do that? Well, they would take the pot and they would invert it. They would turn it upside down and they would, they would take three or four rocks and prop it up off the ground. So it'd be off, lifted off the ground by the entity. Then they would prostrate themselves on the ground and put their lips in between the opening, between the ground and the kettle so that the kettle pot muffled their voices as they prayed through the night. And the story they passed down with the pot is that they didn't think they would see freedom at their time, so they prayed for the freedom of their children and the next generation. So one day freedom comes as this young teenage girl decides to keep that pot and that story in our family. Why? Because she's probably thinking about all those who are dead and gone, who risk their lives to pray <laughs> for her. She's probably thinking about all those who are too old to enjoy the freedom she's about to embrace. So she keeps that pot and that story in our family so she passed the pot and the story down to Harriet Lockett. Harriet Lockett passed it on to Noah Lockett. Noah Lockett passed it on to her son, William Ford, Sr., who then passed it on to William Ford, Jr., who then gave it to me, William Ford, III. So I've been taking it around the country because there's this amazing scripture that talks about prayer bowls. Prayer bowls in heaven, actually catch prayers. Uh, it says in uh, Revelation 5 and 8, that our prayers get turned into incense. Uh, they think that our prayers are some that releases this amazing aroma. It's pretty powerful you think about it. But it's a pleasing aroma to God. And that's what Revelation 8, 5 through 8 talks about. So anyway, all, all that to say, uh, I take this kettle pot around that caught prayers to remind people there's a bowl in heaven that catches our prayers. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been talking about these two groups of people, uh, revivalists and abolitionists. Uh, that uh, along with those black Christian slaves that prayed into being these great revivals. And uh, many people brought such a transformation in people's hearts that ended slavery. So anyway, I had this dream by Dr. King, which we can get to later if you want, but uh, God began to deal with me about my unforgiveness issues with the the race issue, unforgiveness issues with the white community. And uh, it was really healing to me. So I shared it with a friend. He said, Hey, bring that kettle pot. Uh, to the Lincoln Memorial, we'll do a prayer meeting, prayer gathering, the MLK Day. Well, there was a white guy who had a dream about the guy over the event. And, uh, you know, we met, we talked, and we wound up being lasting friends. We've been friends for 15, 16 years. Well, fast forward, that white friend of mine found out that the Civil War ended in his family's front yard. I'm like, wow, what a cool coincidence. to have this kettle pot, the slaves prayed for freedom. Yeah, this house where General Lee fought his last battle without cool coincidence, but then we stumbled on more research Vesper and we learned that it was his family who owned my family where the kettle pot came from. And we met at the Lincoln Memorial, led by dreams, both of us, to the place where Dr. King said, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit together at the table of brotherhood. So my friend, Matt Lockett, you know, if you recognize the beginning part of my family lineage. We were Lockett's. Matt Lockett, his family at one time owned our family, which we found out through our research. But we met together in a prayer meeting. So anyway, all that to say, we wrote a book together called The Dream King. And uh, that's what most people kind of know me for right now.
0: Man, uh, you cannot make that stuff up. It's (laughs) the fact that, like you said, that Dr. King said, literally, I have a dream that this would happen. and that the two of you met on that spot where Dr. King proclaimed that is so powerful. It's just so powerful and not only powerful, but true and possible.
1: Yeah, and you know, know, the the, the friends of us, the friends, the mutual friends that we both have, who know us, I mean, everybody's figured out around us. And so it's easy to vet the the whole story because we were friends 10 years before we realized this whole so they met, found out that the Civil War ended in this family's front yard like four or five years ago, like I said. But we were friends for ten years before that happened, right? And uh, developing this really rich, you know, rich, deep relationship. Uh, he's been a very close friend even during the, all that time period. Lot, lot closer now. Um, one of my best friends. Don't say it too loud so he can, you know, his head, his head yeah. gets so in <laughs> there. But yeah, he's, he's one of my best friends and we've we've learned a lot and being able to share our story and bring a lot of healing to the country in the midst of all this going on.
0: Yeah, it's incredible. I, I've witnessed the two of you um, speaking together, you know, to audiences and mm-hmm. just it's such a powerful testimony, you know, of what, okay. of what is possible. And I, I can only imagine that once you found out about your two families' respective
1: mm-hmm.
0: relationship that... That must have ushered in some very difficult conversations between you.
1: Yeah. See, that's the thing, Vespa. I'm glad we had the 10 years of conciliatory relationship before then. Because everybody talks about reconciliation. You know, for something to be reconciled, something had to be conciliatory. So we had this amazing conciliatory relationship for 10 years. But then after 10 years, we found out the rest of the story, his family owned our family. And I'm thinking, hold up we had stories passed down in our family about a slave who was beat to death just for going fishing without asking. Now, all of a sudden, I have a face connected to that story. Right. But it's the face of someone that I love. <laughs> and so now I'm trying to forget how my friend was ever an enemy to my family. And it was, it was kind of painful, honestly, for, for a little bit. You know, when all the, the fun, swirly stuff wears off, oh, my God, you're awesome. You brought us together. I'm like, hold up your people owe my people, you know? And so we, we went through this journey personally and also together. We talked things out. We had to hash things out in our own hearts.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: uh, I'm glad we did. You know, uh, uh, he's learned things about the African-American community experience that things he kind of blew off before in the past. He now says, oh, I can't understand the why's, the ins and outs of this and this. Not Not this whole thing of perpetual victimization, but the the things that we've had we've had to overcome is still overcoming he he began to see that in a, in a greater light and also uh me I've, i learned a lot too and just what was it like to be acculturated into slavery as a white person right and to fight against that and to come out from under it and you know it wasn't this easy bed of roses that we try to make it out to be and um uh, and the people who fought against it and who came out from under it were very courageous. Matter of fact, even in his own family, he had people who came out from under it. He had a a family member we found out a year and a half later, after we made the discovery, he found out a year and a half later that he had a great great a, a grandfather who uh was a circuit rider with Francis Asbury. And yeah, Francis Asbury, Methodist circuit riding preacher. The circuit riders would uh take a strong stand against slavery during that time period. Uh, George Mason wouldn't sign the um, one of the first original documents for the country because it didn't include emancipating the slaves as well. Uh, and several, so, several of the framers wouldn't, wouldn't sign it early on because of the preaching of, uh, of the circuit writers at that time period. The circuit writers carried two things in their satchel. They carried a Bible and a manumission form. The main mission form was so that if they preached the gospel and there was a slave owner there, they would slide it over there to them. And they said, listen, it was for freedom that Christ set us all free. Therefore, since now you're free, set your slaves free. Wow. And they would sign that document legally and set their slaves free. We know that's what happened because everywhere the circuit riders went, the free slave population grew exponentially. And so it's just, fascinating thing so yeah he had slave owners in his family but he also had this Daniel Lockett in his family who was a circuit rider and so um, we talk about these things called the uh, you know generational you know just patterns that are passed down of of curses you know uh, or alcoholic after alcoholic you know in a, in a family that's, that that becomes like a storyline for a family sometimes right mm-hmm. Or but then you also have other patterns that are passed down of just like blessing and uh, and, and just prosperity, or, or or just benevolence, coming from one family, just and it becomes like the storyline for that family. And I think what we forget is that we have both storylines going on in our family sometimes. And all we have to do is make a choice. And that's what I think God is say, saying to right to America right now, Vesper. Is this what storyline do we want to be a part of? Right. The healing, yeah. the healing, or the hurt, the blessing, right. or the curse. Which one? What storyline are we going to be a part of right
0: now? And it, and it, right now, that aspect of choice doesn't seem to be put forward as as much as the um, that it's it's just a feta complete. It's like there's nothing you can do about it. It's irreversible. Mm-hmm. It's irreconcilable. Right. Um, and when you have something that's irreconcilable, you you divorce. You know. I mean.
1: Yes. And
0: and that's not where we want to go, I don't think. But um, your your analogy of the, of the two choices there reminds me of, you know, the Jewish view of human nature is that we both are made in the image of God, but that we also are fallen. Those two things are both inside of us and both like warring against each other all the time. It's not that human beings are total, de- you know, it's not total depravity and it's not uh, like Rousseauian... Um, blank slate. Everybody's innocent, either. It's mm-hmm. it's these two things always warring in conflict, and it matters which one you feed. Right. But you have a choice of which one you feed. Right. Right.
1: That is that, that is so good, and, and so we get to choose which storyline. Which it's everybody's favorite word right now. Narrative. Yeah. We get to choose the narrative of our lives, but we can start in the starting blocks of somebody else. You know, in our family or even in history, you know, I think Dr. King had unfinished business, you know, Mm. Uh, and actually his I have a dream speech. You know, there are historians who suggest that the word, the phrase I have a dream. It was actually birthed in a different place. It was birthed in a prayer meeting. Dr. King went to a prayer meeting. I think it was in Georgia. And there was a church that had been burned down by the Ku Klux Klan. So in the middle of those ashes, Dr. King went to go pray with uh, some uh, students from the Student Nonviolent Coalition. And one of those praying young people was a lady named Prathia Hall. Prathia Hall.
0: I love her name, Prathia.
1: I know, right? I'd never heard another name like that, Prathia. But uh, uh, her daddy was a a powerful uh, Black Baptist preacher. And uh, she became a woman preacher herself, which was really kind of, uh, unusual at the time period uh, and that her daddy named after prayer <laughs> and she could pray the house down from what all the accounts that I, I read so she's standing in the middle of that rubble this church had been burned down by hatred and bigotry dr. King is there and all of a sudden little Prathia Hall starts saying I have a dream and she gets into this rhythmic cadence and the reports are that dr. King came to her later on and said hey young lady uh, Can I use that phrase? (laughs) You don't mind me using that? No, sir, not at all. And he incorporated that phrase in in his prayer meetings. He would use it in his prayer meetings for about a year. And then when he was in uh, Detroit a month before the March on Washington uh, in 1963, he begins to, uh, he gets into his speech. And at the end, he goes into this thing of I have a dream. All these things, he just starts rattling them off. And Mahalia Jackson was there when he uh, was sharing that. Well, his speechwriters did not want him to put the I have a dream portion in his speech. So in his written speech, you don't see it there. Cause it's his speechwriter says, no, you know, this is about, you know, the, the blank check that we're coming to cash with America, the uh, whatever. I'm oh, sorry. note, Yeah. Yeah. And so it, it said, well, let's just leave all that. I have a dream stuff out. Let's not put that in cause it'll take us off. So he didn't have it in there.
0: So in yeah. the, are you telling me that in the original, like the, that whole portion of that, was ad-libbed?
1: That was ad-libbed from his prayer life over a year and said for the first time, finally, in Detroit. Mahalia Jackson was there in Detroit. Detroit. Mm -hmm. So when he finishes with the written portion of his speech at the Mall of Washington, Mahalia Jackson, you can hear it sometimes, you turn the volume up real loud, Mahalia Jackson leans over and says, Martin, tell him about the dream. (laughs) No way. Then he kicks in. I have a dream. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah.
0: Oh, I, I have, I've listened to that speech, you know,
1: mm-hmm.
0: dozens. And I, now I'm going to have to go back and
1: yeah. listen with so the, the volume way up. So he, he, he comes out of the starting blocks of a prayer meeting from a young girl in a church that's burned down. And it winds up connecting him to, to the unfinished business of Parathia Hall. I get connected to that unfinished business, right Matt Locker gets connected to it in a sense, mm-hmm. and what I, what I'm saying is we get start off in the starting blocks generationally of a narrative that's going to bring healing, and uh, that's what that's what our hope is right now
0: right so those two narratives i mean I've heard it i I've, I've heard it kind of contrasted between the approach of Dr. King and the approach of Malcolm X. Right, yeah. Um and I I can't believe I got through my life without knowing about Booker T and W.E.B. E. B. Du Bois
1: right, and right. and
0: their kind of um split it seems. I mean, I'm only just learning about this, but um it seems that those were two paths that diverged.
1: Yeah. And yeah, Booker T Washington um uh started with Tuskegee Institute and uh believe that we should pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and we need to le- learn, uh, trades. We need to learn how to uh, work with our hands. That, and that was great. That's great. That's right. But yeah, the, uh, WB Du Bois who believed that uh, you you had to have this talented 10th and that the, the, the most intelligent were meant to be the spokesman's for those who weren't as intelligent, weren't as eloquent. And I think there's something to that that, that can, you know, really be, you know, you can merge those things together but right. uh th- but there was a split f- philosophically between the two uh because booker t was so much about you know what we we don't we don't need no handouts we don't need no hand ups we can do this by ourselves and so that that, that was his heart which is interesting because you know booker t washington he starts um the tuskegee institute and the second president of, of the tuskegee institute was an interesting man and that's connected to the whole storyline with Matt and I, There was a uh, there were two slaves who were trying to learn how to read and write. This mother was trying to teach her five-year-old boy how to read, and she couldn't read that well herself, but she was doing her best to teach him. It was during the Reconstruction period. and still during that time period. Uh, whites frowned on blacks learning how to read because they were afraid of insurrections. They were afraid they, you know, planned coups against them or whatever. So even. After slavery was over, they were it was frowned upon to, to see Blacks learn how to read and write. So they were working on her farm, uh, just coming out of slavery. And um, Lucy Lockett, Matt's distant foremother, four, four walks in on them, and they're trying to learn how to read and write. So they thought there would be like negative consequences for that. But Lucy Lockett says, no, 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 what you're doing is good and right. Matter of fact, I'm going to take over your tutoring. And she does. And she teaches that mother and she teaches a little five year old boy how to read. Well, that five year old boy, he grows up to be Robert Russell Moton. We know this story because he put it in his autobiography. He becomes the second president of Tuskegee Institute. Wow. He becomes an education advisor to four presidents. And when the Lincoln Memorial was dedicated in 1922, he's the one that gave the dedication speech.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: Yep. And then 41 years later, Dr. King would come there and do the I Have a Dream speech. And then 41 years later, Matt Lockett and I would meet in those steps where Dr. King said, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit together at the table of brotherhood.
0: So That's just unbelievable. And like you're saying, I mean, there was, there was one strain of Matt's family that was. Feeding the the wrong, you know, the right, right. Um, but then this other strain that was feeding the right, and yeah. that that's even possible is just incredible. It's so it's so encouraging,
1: and oh, it's, so, yeah, yeah, I mean. Yeah. Mess family also invented the Confederate flag. I mean, there's so, the wow. whole story is crazy.
0: Yeah, <laughs> everybody should definitely get your book because a lot of these stories are in the book and more. And so, a yeah. little plug everybody, the book is right behind you on your bookshelf, I see. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: Plug, right? yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> I have mine on my bookshelf too, you know. But um, yeah, no, everybody should get your book. It's just incredible. And I, I read it to my family at bedtime, and we just. Oh, wow. One thing after the other, we were just like mind blown completely. I mean, the power of, the power of our own stories, like you're saying, there's a narrative in the country as a whole, right? Yes. You right know? Yes.
1: And. Yeah, 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 or, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Or I
0: was going to say we're competing narratives, let's say,
1: mm-hmm,
0: you know, mm-hmm. and um, as my pastor said the other day, the, um, you know, the message is scrambled. And it's yeah. really hard. It's very confusing. And we're all trying to figure out like, what is the storyline that we're tr- we're supposed to be following right now? Um, we're, we're kind of looking for one single thread that runs through it. And it's really hard to find. Maybe that doesn't even exist or whatever. But the power of not just a collective story, as important as that is, but the power of these individual stories, you know, and and to not... I mean, I think you know, for us as artists, like to not second mm-hmm. guess how important your personal story is. Yes. And who that's going to touch, you know.
1: Yeah, that's 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 just so powerful. And, you know, it, it's interesting, Robert. I'm, I'm I'm not distracted, but I'm pulling up Robert Milton's speech mm. <clears throat> from when he's when he spoke at the Lincoln Memorial, Right. and um, he he talks in in this speech about the these, scarlet thread, hmm. and he talked, he talked about the hand of providence and the, how providence uh, moves in, in our lives. And uh, he says that uh, it was the hand of providence that brought us all to this nation. <clears throat> and he said that uh, the, this beautiful tapestry called freedom was woven into America. But he, then he says that there is this scarlet thread Of racism that came in through slavery, and he says that he talks about how God is still trying to pull that fabric out, and even though it's woven into the fabric of the country. So here you have 1619, you had the Jamestown Company, and through that came the scarlet thread of slavery. And he says in 1620, you had the Pilgrims come in, and they released another uh, uh, thread of freedom. Those things being woven together. But then he says God is tugging on that one thread. And here's the thing. If God starts tugging, if providence is tugging on a thread and trying to pull it out, anything else that's affected to it is going to react and is going to respond. That means every institution, every, every uh, person in power, every person is using their, their status and clinging on to it and not putting it at risk so that they can see other people first it's gonna it's gonna react it's gonna respond to that and that's what i feel like is going on right now we're still every now every every couple of years there's something that happens to make us pull at pull that pull that scarlet thread out of the fabric of our nation over and over again so i think that's where we yeah. are right now and we're, I, we're reacting to that
0: yeah and i mean you and i have such a, a love for history um but you know as a historical fiction writer myself Mm
1: -hmm.
0: that's the thing that always really gets me is how interconnected you know that history is not just this set of facts and figures that we learn in school and then forget it really it is the the story of human choices it's the story of human beings and how each of those choices is interlocked and and the it's not just, you know, in your own time period, you know, you're not just writing the story of your own time period. You're continuing a storyline that's been, you know, from before and before and before and will continue after you. Right. And so like the choices that you make now, they're influenced by the past, but you, you can change the narrative going forward. Yeah. You know, it's, it's totally continuous.
1: it's, It's continuous and it's, it's exponential too. I think there's this synergistic thing that happens, you know, synergy, you know, scientists say, when you take two separate things and, and you connect them together, it doesn't create an additional power, but a multiplicity of power. I think that's, that, 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 happens even with, uh, with history. And synergistically, we can connect to some things from the past and exponentially move things forward in a profound way. You know, right. we see that a lot with technology, but we need to see that more with the human condition. And, uh, and, uh, and that's, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm working on.
0: Right. So I wanna get back to talking about dreams for a minute. Okay. And uh, then I, I wanna come back to our national narrative. But okay. dreams, you know, you and I are big dreamers.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I know your, your son is a big dreamer too.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: he had a, a pretty profound Serious. dream <laughs> yep. about the coronavirus. And um, mm-hmm. and I know that right now, in during quarantine, a lot of people have been having very vivid dreams and they don't necessarily know what to make of it. Yeah. You know, because they, they might not view their dreams from a spiritual place. They might just be like, oh, I've, I guess I've been eating too much pizza or something like that, you <laughs> right, know, right, <laughs> during right. quarantine. Um, but, you know, dreams are stories, you know, and, um, you know, artists in particular seem to have a very vivid dream life. You know, a lot of us get, um, you know, we'll wake up with a song lyric in our mind that we're like, Oh, we got to write that down, you know, and, or a a painting that we want to do or a scene for a book, you know, and you wake up and you've got that in a dream and you have got to get that out. Right. So I would like to know what you think about, the nature of dreams and how we might be able to think about our dream life you know in this time and as stories what do you think
1: well dreams are so transcendent and the thing i love about dreams is that you can't crank them out for the most part you can't really crank out a dream Uh, you can just kind of daydream and just ruminate, but when you sleep and all of a sudden this vivid thing happens and you, that's, that's kind of like the stuff that that's otherworldly and uh, they arrest the affections, you know, they, they, they subpoena your consciousness and uh, they really um, augment the way that you see life right. and, and, and remove a lot of the parameters. Of course you have the, the junk dreams that, Sure. The stuff from you know you just saw something the other night or whatever or bad commercial or whatever you have those dreams or you have the thoughts that just kind of ruminate ruminate throughout the day and this you're still thinking and your subconscious is going. but then there are these other things that these dreams that this otherworldly stuff and uh for creators i say you, you just pay attention to those uh whether you're an artist or you're an entrepreneur matter of fact uh, madam cj walker who uh was a slave, she was, well, she was born in slavery and uh, was a sharecropper for many years, was married uh, and uh, divorced, gone through a horrible relationship where a man used to beat her. And uh, it was in that low moment that she has experienced experience and she uh, becomes a Christian there in her plantation. And then after she becomes a Christian, her hair starts falling out. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I mean just and she's like, oh, what do I what do I do? And other people on the on the on the plantation where they were working as sharecroppers, those other women, their hair fa- hair was falling out too. So Madam CJ Walker has this new found spiritual relationship with God. So she prays, God, you gotta help me. I'm going through a lot here. And she has a dream. She has a dream about roots and berries back in Africa that if she mixed them together uh, with some of the products that she had, it will make her hair grow. So she she ordered off of this stuff, waits a while for it to come in, and she comes in, and she uh, mixes together. She puts it on her hair. Her hair starts growing back faster than it was falling out. Come on. (laughs) She put it on the the heads of the other women there that were working there with her. Their hair started growing back faster than it was falling out. So she started this thing called Madam C.J. Walker's Miracle Hair Grow Company. And she becomes – the first woman millionaire in america
0: wow not From a dream.
1: yeah not the first black woman she's the first ever woman millionaire yeah. according to the guinness book of world records because of a dream amazing so innovators yeah pay attention to your dreams uh there was a man um william merle Voorhees. william merle Voorhees. he was uh he was a missionary and uh uh, but before he was a missionary, he was an architect. Worked as an architect, um, and so he becomes a missionary to Japan. And while he was in Japan, the YMCA in Japan needed someone to design a building for him. So he felt like he was he, he he should use his architect skills to help design this building. So he does. But then he saw that hey, you know what? I can also, with the people that I've you know been uh, uh, ministering to. I need to bring them into this practice. So he started, the people he was ministering to, he'd bring them into this architect practice. And uh, so he started a business out of it eventually. Well, while he's there, William Earl Voorhees has a couple of dreams that were interesting. One, he has this dream about this plant that he could use and put together that would uh, be, put this, uh, become a healing ornament to people when they're, uh, when they're sick. And so William Earl Voorhees is the person who invented methyladium.
0: Like Vicks Rub, kind of
1: yeah. Uh, Yeah. yeah, Before there was Vicks Rub, there was mentholadium and my mother used to put that on me all the time. My grandmother too. I feel like I lived in that stuff as a kid. (laughs) And the other dream that William Merrill Voorhees had, he dreamt one time about uh, this, these buildings that were, that were shaking from earthquakes. And in the dream, he saw spacers being put in the different places in the buildings and it stopped the buildings from falling down. And so William Merrill Voorhees is the architect that invented uh, earth, earthquake proof buildings.
0: Oh my goodness. From mentholatum.
1: From mentholatium, yes.
0: <laughs> earthquake proof buildings. Earthquake proof buildings. That's incredible. Buildings. I, yeah. um, I uh, remember in fifth grade, um, visiting the, the lab of Thomas Edison in New mm-hmm. Jersey. And he used to, he had like a little bed in his laboratory and uh, he would take cat naps. And what I learned was that he would go to sleep holding ball bearings in his hands mm-hmm. so that the minute that he would fall asleep, he would drop the ball bearings and it would wake him up. And just in that moment between sleep and wake, he, that's where he got a lot of his ideas from.
1: Wow. Isn't that incredible? Wow. That's fascinating. So
0: he really believed in in the power of dreams and harnessed that. You think you think, oh, you know, a scientist like wouldn't p- really pay attention to their dreams, but
1: yeah, yeah. Um, George Washington Carver, he was another one. Um, He's there at Tuskegee Institute, but uh, George Washington Carver would go into his study with a Bible and a and a notepad. That's all he really took in there with him, and uh, the Lord would speak to him, and he he'd get dreams. And uh, he he write everything down. And wow. so from the peanut, he had, what, like 300 different inventions? Right, right. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, just yeah.
0: incredible. Ah, oh, amazing. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, so as creatives, pay attention to your dreams. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they give instruction. But they also, too, it's is just another way to open yourself up to uh, all the other possibilities of, of uh, creativity and power and beauty. Right. You know, it's the whole aesthetic realm uh, can be unlocked in a whole nother way through through dreams.
0: Right, it's incredible. Yeah, and I think you know, um, in times of upheaval too, you know, um, mm-hmm. I think something that I notice that I have noticed during quarantine and then during um, the the protest movement right now is that I don't, I I sort of don't trust that my art is going to, you know, have, make any contribution, you know, Um, like it feels indulgent or something like that. But I think, you know, in hearing these stories, I'm realizing, no, like, it's actually in dreams that we have the power or that, that we receive the power and the revelation to solve problems and problems that problems that we could never brainstorm Mm-hmm. just sitting at our desks and you know taking notes or whatever it like unlocks a different part of our of our awareness
1: yeah that for me too the matter of fact my, my whole story my friend Matt Lockett, it was unlocked through a dream I dreamt that uh I dreamt I was on my way to Dr. King's old church uh to to speak but I had to pick up Dr. King to get there and so in the dream I go by this house and Dr. King he comes out of this house. It's a dream, so he's alive, right? <laughs> but, yeah. but in the dream, he has this huge white duffel bag with black handles on it, and he starts throwing all this dark garbage out of that duffel bag. And he comes again to get into this vehicle with us. And in that dream, I thought to myself, "Man, that bag could make a nice souvenir." You know, I mean, uh, I went to Morehouse College. He went to Morehouse College. <laughs> the bag could make a nice souvenir. So in the dream, I go to try to pick up the baggage, but before I could grab it, Dr. King grabs me by my shoulders and he says, "No." do not go back and pick that up. And then the dream, he starts telling me what I need to do to heal the racial divide in the nation. And so I, I wake up in the dream in tears, I'm bawling my eyes out. I'm Like God, remind me what did Dr. King say to me? And the Lord said to me, no, the white bag, white bag with the black handles, that will be the interpretation for your dream. And I realized what he was saying. So the black handles represented how I as a black man had been handling my white baggage. I was saying to him, "Get rid of your white baggage. You've been carrying it for way too long." Wow! And so I knew what he was talking about because I, I, I had gone through a, a, three significant things. One, when I was thirteen years old, I was chased along with three friends. We were chased by a carload full of white guys who called us the N-word in Texas, and they, they said they're going to shoot and kill us. They chased us for like two hours. Um, mm-hmm. They were probably probably joyriding, but we were we were terrified, you know. I remember later on, nineteen years old. A, Uh, officer falsely accused me of shoplifting and we couldn't find anything. He tried to provoke me to fight him. (laughs) I know I remember another time in my 30s I get my first house uh, in the suburbs and the same police officer for the first three months would just follow me for just driving while black every week and would pull and pull me over. So I know what that feels like. But you know what I did best for for every person in that area. I put those narratives I put those storylines on everybody. Every police officer, every white person, and uh, before they can ever have one conversation with me, I put those bad experiences on everybody. Right. And so there's this interesting word uh, for accuser. Uh, it's, it's a Greek word called kategoros, and it's where we get the word category. And uh, it's where uh, they call it the the the, the devil, the accuser of the brethren, and uh, it's the word katagoras Wow. That's what we do. We categorize each other. I realized from this dream, that's what I had done. I categorized or stereotyped other people in the same way they that I've been stereotyped. And I put those three narratives or those storylines in front of everybody like a veil. And I saw everybody through that filter. And what I felt like what was being communicated to me was I need to get rid of my baggage. I need to get rid of my resentment. I really needed to get rid of my bitterness. I needed to get rid of my resentment my unforgiveness, get rid of my white baggage so I can get into another vehicle that can bring revival and justice for everybody. So it was after I had that dream and I had that level of forgiveness, I had this uh, book with me. I actually went to Dr. King's church the next day, the old one uh, that was in the dream, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. And I went to his old pulpit where he used to preach. And I had this big, thing book called A Testament of Hope. It falls open to the, I have a dream speech. And so I start reading that book, like a prayer, reading that, reading that, uh, not book, but reading that speech, like a prayer. And I get to the part where he says, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves, sons of former slave owners, sit together at the table of brotherhood. And for the first time I prayed and forgave the family that owned our family.
0: Before you had even met Matt.
1: Yep. And then months later, Matt and I meet for the first time, not knowing, (sighs) not knowing that our, our family lines were connected, our story lines were connected. And so I'm saying it's like dreams are transcendent, and if we'll pay attention to them and uh, they can unlock our purpose, they can unlock our destiny. And that's what's happened to me. I, that that dream from 2004 has changed my life, but I had to do what the dream was asking me to do. I had to get rid of my baggage. Right. Mm-hmm.
0: oh my goodness. I just I think we need to like sit with that for a while. Um, there's so much to what you just said too, about the uh, you know, the catagaras mm-hmm. and how much we put on each other.
1: Um, yep. Oh, yeah, yeah, from the bad narratives. right. just yep. put it on everybody. This is, oh, this is the way you are. This is who you are. You haven't said a word yet, but we put it on each other. Yeah.
0: We do. And we do it to each other. I mean, um, I recall very recently, I don't know if you saw this, but on CNN, Van Jones Mm -hmm. said that white people have a mind virus, all white people have a mind virus called racism that can be activated at any time.
1: Mm.
0: And I thought that is a recipe that is not what we want to, that's not where we want to go. No. That mindset. And and that's exactly what you're saying. You know, that just, you know, I, I may not know you, I may not have ever said a word to you, but I'm going to make up my mind about everything you are. And we, I wonder if, you know, as you were talking, I thought, and I, this is just me verbal processing. I may be totally wrong about this, but mm-hmm. that narrative that, um, you know, all white people are racist Yeah, at their, at their core, they can't help it. It will always be there. Maybe instead of the word racist, which is so loaded and so overused right now, maybe we could use category because category is something that we all do. So instead right. of, instead of debating whether there's such a thing as reverse racism or blah, 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 it's not helpful. We do know that we all put each other in
1: categories Yep, we stereotype each other. Yeah. And, and now all stereotypes, bad in that sense, categories aren't necessarily bad. It's just when we right. keep people in there in that category. And then we won't start off from a positive category
0: mm-hmm.
1: before we put people into a different category of people we want to disassociate from and not, and not connect with. Mm-hmm. That's that's the issue. And so uh, how we that, that filter that we see people through it mm-hmm. has to be one that's hopeful. It has to be one that's redemptive. It has to be one that assumes the best right. for, each, for, for each other and hopes for the best from each other. And when we can start to live and see each other that way,
0: mm-hmm.
1: we can be part of the right storyline.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that um, that the whole concept of of believing that every human being is made in the image of God is that starting point yeah. that that does assume the best that does assume mm-hmm. you know the dignity and assumes the best
1: yeah exactly
0: yeah and i, I think um you know I'm, I'm familiar with your story that you about the police officer assuming that you were shoplifting and um oh,
1: yeah.
0: yeah that i i wanted to ask you about that sure um in the last i we could talked for (laughs) two hours, you know, and and we have talked for a long time about these things, but, um, you know, could you relate that story? Because I think that it actually has something to say to artists and here's why. Mm -hmm. One of the things I talk about here on the podcast is I've been talking about the artistic process Mm -hmm. and that, um, you know, part of what we're trying to do on the podcast here is, um, to, get out of the political narrative that we're so uh, we're so forced into. We're like crammed into that political narrative. Like that's the only way to see the world is through these political lenses, right? Yeah. And so I'm, you know, I, I found myself bewildered over the past few years. Like, yeah, but I don't see the world that way. Like I I would have to change my fundamental, like my brain in right. order to see the world that way. I think I'm an artist. I think like an artist, you know? Yeah. And so I've been trying to, acquaint people who might not consider themselves artists or reacquaint artists with this concept of artistic process, right? Mm -hmm. And what I've been noticing is that since social media came on the scene, because I I got my start like like you, you know, way before social media, Mm -hmm. um, but that we've become disconnected from process. Like there's this pressure to post right away. And the idea that it would take months or even years to create work, it flies in the face of that like immediate reaction that we're looking for when we post things. Right. So I think it's really important for artists in this moment to slow way down, not feel the pressure to um, make a statement right away until they really understand what's going on and to think incredibly careful, carefully before they snap to action. Right. And so this story, you know, that I'm asking you to tell, um, I think says a lot to that because yeah. of what your father told you.
1: Yeah, and that and goes back even to to process, preparation for you, know, for, for you in that moment. Yes. So it starts <laughs> off with, with me being six years old and my dad getting me a Social Security card. <laughs> Yeah. Cause I worked for it. I worked for my dad at Ford universal Carpet company (laughs) and they had a carpet and tile company. And, uh, he, he, you know, he instilled in all of us, uh, uh, you know, the value of work, good work ethic. And so six years old, I'm in that shop I'm cleaning up or whatever, probably messed up more than I cleaned up, but you know, yeah, he, but he paid me to work and he got me a social security card and he made me, here's the thing. He made me memorize my social security number 10 years go by. 16, I'm 16 years old, I get my driver's license. He made me memorize my driver's license number. I said, Okay, what is your obsession with numbers? Why you made me memorize these numbers? He said, Well, here's the deal. Sometimes you're going to have police officers come to you. He said, I have friends who are police officers. And they'll tell you that there are some people there who uh, hide their insecurities behind a badge. And uh, what they'll do sometimes is they'll take your information from you. And if you don't have it memorized, they can just take it into uh, the office on suspicion. And then he said, oh, yeah, and uh, don't take the bait. I was like, don't take the bait? What do you mean? He said, sometimes they will try to provoke you into a fight or something like that or say things that make you react. If you react, they, it's just an excuse for them to, to do horrible things to you. Listen, he said, listen, your job is to come home. So you say, yes, sir, no, sir. If you need to look and see a badge number or something, do that, deal with it later. But your job is to get home. Don't take the bait. So, what I just had with everybody, if you're not aware of it, I just had to talk. That was what my dad, he had to talk with me about how to mm-hmm. respond to police officers. So that's why I just share with y'all. So, what happens? I'm 19 years old, it's three years later. I'm uh, playing junior college basketball in the city. And uh, my teammates were walking through a grocery store and there's this person following us. I, I didn't think nothing of it, but my, my teammate is like, that's a plainclothes cop. He follows me every time I come in here. It's like, really? Mm-hmm. So, wild. Well, African-American, we're going through the store, uh, white police officer. And sure enough, he was a police officer. And uh, we get to the checkout line, and my teammate uh, just begins to embarrass me. He begins to, <laughs> he begins to just shout at the top of his lungs while he's in the checkout line. He says, yes, I'm reaching into my pocket and I'm pulling out the money in my pocket that my mother sent me so I could buy stuff this week. And I'm telling you this because this man back here, he always follows me every time I come into the store. He treats me like I'm stealing every time and I'm not stealing anything. He follows me every time I'm tired of it. I'm like, ah, (laughs) I'm freaking Uh out. I'm like, I'm just shrinking (laughs) best of the whole time. (laughs) And my other teammate is there too, right? And then. And then, you know, the, the officer follows us out. He said, you know what? He shows us his bed and says, hey, you know, I, I, am, I am an officer. But that what you did back there was totally uncalled for. First, the officer was cool and calm, but my teammate is cussing him, cussing him out. And now the officer starts cussing out my teammate. Oh, no. No longer professional, whatever. Doesn't try to uh, defuse, the, de-escalate the situation. And in the middle of these two arguing and cussing at each other, my other teammate leans over to me and says, hey, Ford, whatever goes down, you got to be down for whatever. (laughs) So I'm like, oh, my God, this recipe for disaster. And then all of a sudden, the police officer looks at all three of us, one-on-one, individually, and he says, so what you going to do about it, boy? And he says it all – and when he says it to me, all of a sudden i heard my dad say don't take the bait i said come on y'all let's go come on y'all let's go come on y'all, let's go i just used the broken record technique come on y'all let's go come on and we we all left we we walked home we cried all the way home don't take the bait and that's what is going on right now everybody's taking the bait you know um zimmerman and uh (laughs) trayvon martin took the bait Mm One got offended, the one was following them and they took the bait and we're in this mess where we're in now, but then not just them, it didn't start with them. But this thing of offense where we get trapped and we get in in over our heads with what's going on right now and uh, we cannot take the bait. We have to respond and not react right now. Even with the things that we create and put out, whether it's a meme, whether it's uh, uh, poetry, art, or whatever, you know, some things are for us to process, but then some things are for others, so that we can all be part of the healing process. Mm-hmm. And I think that creators, right now, if they don't take the bait, <laughs> they could be used to be to be part of the healing process mm-hmm. and bring us all closer together.
0: Wow, well, that's that's incredible. Um, I have a lot to think about. <laughs> I mean, I, whenever we talk, I always <laughs> I just ponder for days and days. Um, but I think talking about this as artists, especially mm-hmm. um, when and, and you know, I'll I'll close. You know, we'll close with this. But
1: mm-hmm.
0: when artists are not in touch with that process, we're very vulnerable to that political worldview that yeah. wants to categorize, immediate, you know, react. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: But when we can take a step back and and understand, no, we're, we're artists. Mm -hmm. We we can respond. We can create work out of the moment. We can create work out of pain. We can create work, um, that, you know, humanizes and, and, Mm um, you know, uh, helps helps with the narrative that is healing and is redemptive and forgiving, you know, but we have to be conscious of that. You know, yeah, we, we have to be conscious to not be reactive, but instead respond.
1: So yeah. I put out a post uh, in a, when George Floyd died and uh, kind of attacking my own movement a little bit. And uh, I don't know if it was like visceral, visceral, but it had a little bit of stink on it. It had a little stink on it. <laughs> <laughs> And I had a very good friend and mentor call me and talk to me about it. He said, you know, he said, maybe not don't take it down, but I just want to challenge you to write a follow-up. And I did. I wrote a follow-up to it. And the follow-up, after I had time to process, it was so healing. It's gone all around the world. One little Facebook post. Let me just shared about 700 800 times i mean it's not viral, viral but in my little world yeah it is and um uh, that's what we need more of right now
0: yeah yeah and i am so um i've been really challenged by your uh exhortation I'm just, <laughs> it's a i'm looking for the words but your exhortation to stay in the room
1: yeah, that's where the yeah. stay in the room came from. It was birthed out of that.
0: Yeah, to to stay engaged, to not go running screaming for the hills or, <laughs> or you know shut everything off or be reactionary, but to stay in the room.
1: Mm-hmm. And not, and not be, um, not not be surprised by the, the things that people are saying right now. Just you know allow people time to vent, but stay in the room with them and help them work through all their stuff. You know, a lot of I know creators would love to talk about Job and his process and what he went through. And one of the the first beautiful things in his process, he had these friends, Bildad, Eliphaz, Elihu, I forget the other two. Elihu was there on the side. He's the wise young one, probably like Vesper, right? (laughs) Uh, Young wise one. But uh, Job loses everything. He breaks out and boils and all this stuff and lost his wife, kids, everything. And he's there. But the Bible says it's interesting. He was there in that room in silence. They all sat in silence as friends for seven days. You imagine how healing that must have felt just to be, he didn't have to say anything, he had to do anything. They were just there. Yeah. And then he finally felt enough courage to say something authentic, something that was going on in the inside. He felt for the first time to get it out on the outside. And when he does that, his friends say, you must have done something God, God must be doing this because you did something. What is it? Tell us, tell us, tell us, you know, and before long, they all leave and there's only one left is Elihu and and Job and he's able to decipher through some of the things that could be true with what the other guys said, connect them to God's storyline for Job's life. And then Job has his encounter with God in the whirlwind and he gets, you know, as the black preachers always say, double for his (laughs) trouble. But the thing is, that was because Ellie, he was willing to stay in the room. Mm. Their restoration came to Job. And that's what we need. We need people who can create a safe place through our art, through our creativity, create a safe place for people to get on the outside, what's going on, on the inside. We're not surprised what's going on along with them. Because we're, we're human. We're not going to judge where they are right now in their process, but we're going to stay in the room, be committed with them to help them get to that place of healing, and get to that encounter with God that can turn everything around.
0: Mm. Well, that's, that's how you end a conversation with plenty to, plenty to think about. And um, Will, thank you so much.
1: Uh, Vesper, love you dearly. Thank you so thank much. You Blessings.
0: Of course, this week's recommended read is Will Ford and Matt Lockett's book, The Dream King. It's the story of how Will and Matt met, the extraordinary story of their family's connection, and the hope that it holds out for our country. Highly recommend it. Thanks for joining me for this week's Vesperisms. My new book, A Cloud of Outrageous Blue, is available now for pre-order, and it has a lot to say about finding creativity and fighting fear in the middle of a pandemic. In this case, the Great Plague of 1348. Follow me on Instagram at Vesper Illustration and subscribe to my newsletter at VesperIllustration.com to get news about my work and a free outtake chapter from A Cloud of Outrageous Blue. And I would love it if you'd leave a five-star review on iTunes. That'll help others to find this podcast and spread the message of an artistic worldview to even more people. Music for Vesperisms, as always, is provided by Ben and Vesper, and that's my band. Don't doubt it for a minute, friends. Your voice is important. Your contribution matters. And just remember, work isn't everything, but everything is the work.
1: See you next time.